Proverbs chapter 24, at near the end of the chapter, we'll be starting in verse 23, because Jesus commanded his church to make disciples of all nations, it is right for churches to care about the world. Churches ought to be active and perhaps activists in the world. But often churches are not wise in the way they pursue their care for the world. Some churches will focus on proclaiming truth to a world wrapped in deception. What we most need is more truth and more truth speakers and more public calling out of wickedness and delusion. Once they hear and receive the truth, then we can think about how to meet people's needs. Other churches will focus on serving a world wrapped in desperation. So what we most need is to get out there and to love our neighbors and serve our neighborhoods. And once we've met their needs, then we can think about how to communicate to them the truth. According to the wisdom of Proverbs... We must not choose between these approaches. This morning, I would like to show you that our church's works must live up to our words. And our church's words must live up to our works. That's where we're heading this morning. Let me pray for our time in God's word. Father in heaven... Lord, please open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your word. Please strengthen us and motivate us to represent you well with both our words and our works. Strengthen us by grace. Show us the Lord Jesus and may we walk faithfully in him as our Lord and our Savior. And so we pray that you would do these things now for his sake. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, for a few months, we've been studying a variety of topics scattered across the book of Proverbs. But near the end of this book, there are a few longer poems that we ought to reckon with to complete our study of wisdom in Proverbs. So this week, and then in our last few sermons on Proverbs, we'll be looking at these longer poems, and we'll take a look at these uh, lengthier passages. And so it will be on the screen. It's also on page 512 of the church Bible, if you have one of the church Bibles. So let's read it now. Proverbs 24, starting at verse 23. These also are sayings of the wise. Partiality in judging is not good. Whoever says to the wicked, you are in the right, 
will be cursed by peoples, abhorred by nations, but those who rebuke the wicked will have delight, and a good blessing will come upon them. Whoever gives an honest answer kisses the lips. Prepare your work outside. Get everything ready for yourself in the field. And after that, build your house. Be not a witness against your neighbor without cause and do not deceive with your lips. Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber. And want like an armed man. Now this poem divides into four stanzas that we'll take a look at. The first and third stanzas deal with our words that must be honest and based in the truth. And the second and fourth stanzas deal with our works which require diligence and intention. Now, we've covered both of these topics already in our series, the topic of speech and the topic of diligence. But what this passage uniquely contributes is the combination of the two by alternating back and forth between words and works. This text is showing us the intimate connection between our words and our works. It shows us that our church's works must live up to our words, and our words must live up to our works. So let me address the two parts of words and works in that order. First, you can see in your outline, point number one, let's talk about true words. After the heading at the beginning of verse 23, that these also are sayings of the wise, that marks out this brief section of the book. The first stanza states its thesis up front. The end of verse 23. Partiality in judging is not good. That's the thesis here of this stanza. It's reinforced at the end in verse 26, where an honest answer, presumably an impartial answer, in judgment, is likened to a kiss on the lips. So what does partiality tend to look like? Why does he caution us against partiality in judging? Well, in verse 24, it tells us that partiality means declaring the wicked to be in the right. Declaring the wicked to be in the right. Now, why would anyone do that? Especially, why would a judge called upon to render a verdict, why would that judge declare the wicked to be in the right? Well, we should remember what we've been learning all through this book, 
this book of Proverbs has highlighted over and over again that the wicked tend to be the people in society with most of the wealth and the power. Now, I'm not saying that having wealth makes you wicked or having power makes you wicked, but being wicked, the, the temptation to that is that it will get you more wealth and power. This book has highlighted that over and over again. And that's why people might be tempted to join the wicked. So when we reflect on what this means for a society, as this this poet reflects on what this means for a society, he recognizes that there will be a lot of pressure on judges and on citizens to remain in the favor of the wicked, those with most of the wealth and the power. So if you want to keep your job, if you want to keep your social status, you will go along with the prevailing ideology and the prevailing way of doing things. The problem, however, is that those who pervert the truth in favor of the wicked end up, verse 24, bringing a curse on themselves and they become the objects of hatred. They are abhorred by nations. Now, in our culture, the word cursing typically means speaking profanity. We say bad words. That's what we mean by cursing. But in the Bible... This concept of cursing means asking for a negative judgment or punishment on someone. For example, the first time I took one of my daughters on a long bike ride, she had such a hard time of it that she was calling curses down on herself by the end. Early in the ride, she was saying, I wish I didn't even come on this bike ride. But by the end, that turned into the curse. I wish I didn't even have a bike. That's a curse in the biblical sense. And verse 24 says that cursing, a wish for punishment, a wish for harm, is the result of perverting truth in the public sphere. The people who witness the perversion, those who suffer the perversion, will ask God to punish, to curse the liars, those who have been partial in their judgment toward the wicked. But the opposite of cursing is blessing, which is the promise of verse 25. Those who rebuke the wicked secure the people's delight and they will receive a good blessing, a wish for positive outcomes. Now, we must remember that the book of Proverbs was not written directly to us. It was written to the people of Israel in ancient times. Those who were in a contractual relationship with the creator God. And now that Jesus Christ has come and he's fulfilled God's promises, his church, whether Jew or Gentile, makes up the new people of God. So this poem is telling us that the words 
of our church, the people of God, the words of both leaders and members will result in either blessings or curses sent our way. How does this apply? Well, when you speak truth and call out evil for what it is, you honor the Lord through your wisdom, even though the wicked will likely hate you for it. The general citizenry will be blessed by it, and they will bless you for it. Now, we need to keep in mind the context, things we've seen all over this book. We've seen in other Proverbs that God's people are not called to be the sin police in other people's lives. So this is not saying that it's your job to go around looking for infractions and calling people out for it. This passage is speaking specifically to situations where a judgment is warranted. That applies to the judges of our land. It applies to situations in our church where we are called to render judgments. It could involve as another example, anytime you're called to serve on a jury. You know, there's tremendous pressure in our day for juries to render certain verdicts regardless of the evidence. You know, two people in our culture could commit the same offense, the same set of behaviors with comparable evidence supporting the charge. Yet because of their social status or the color of their skin, one of them is expected to be declared innocent and the other is expected to be declared guilty. And this must not be so. This is a curse and a detestable thing to a nation. Partiality in judging is not good. One thing we should realize from this poem is that God cares even more about justice and righteousness than any of us do. God wants to ensure that his people love justice as he loves justice. So even if you have suffered injustice in the past and you feel like you need to fix that past injustice, maybe you're tempted to overcompensate for it with new injustice. You can trust that God sees and hears you and he will rescue you and he will vindicate you. If you feel that you have not received the justice that you are due, Please trust in God and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ because in him you will find one who speaks truth to power more effectively than any of us ever could. And Jesus promises us that he will renew the earth in justice and righteousness one day. Now, this doesn't only apply to our legal system you might also be called upon to render a judgment by a supervisor in the workplace or by a colleague or by a parent or a teacher or a child. Folks, come to you when you're in a position to render a judgment. 
Perhaps your professor assigns you a paper where you are required to declare that something God considers wicked is morally justifiable. And you're called upon to make that argument. Now there is a time and a place to represent the other side of an argument. So it might be a good exercise for you to argue a case with which you don't agree for the purpose of education and learning how to think. But if it's not merely an exercise, but it's an expectation of partiality, then it is a curse and an embarrassment for a person to give in to it. In the workplace, even the requirement or the expectation to state your pronouns or include them in your email signature is problematic. Because to give your pronouns, to place them there in the signature is an implicit acknowledgement that your pronouns might be something other than what God has assigned them to be. So be careful that by your words, you do not declare wickedness to be in the right. Now, this text's concern with our words is not limited to speaking well of the wicked. The third stanza goes in the opposite direction. It is just as problematic to speak poorly of the innocent. Verse 28 commands us not to bear false witness against others. And being a false witness, or or being a witness without cause, deceiving with our lips, that could refer to lying or deceiving or even dropping hints about someone regarding things that are not true or might not be true. And why would someone do that? Why, Why do we do that? Why do we deceive in in this way? Well, according to verse 29, we're often tempted to speak ill of someone because they've harmed us in some way. And I'm going to pay him back for what he's done. If you have hurt me, then it is only natural that I should want you to understand that hurt and so to be hurt yourself, even if I have to make something up in order for that to happen. But friends, this must not be the case among God's people. We take other people down without cause to our own great peril. And this requires real wisdom because real evil is to be called out. But imaginary evil must never even be entertained. It's not okay to make something up in order to punish a person for some other but unrelated offense. For example, at another church, I once had a divisive person criticize my preaching in order to sow chaos and discord in the body. And I had to speak strong words in public to call out such wicked behavior. But on many other occasions, I have been hurt by people, even people in this room, who have criticized my preaching to help me improve. 
And this requires me to put my money where my mouth is and to receive instruction. This is what wisdom does. It enables you to tell the difference between righteousness and wickedness so that you will judge with right judgment, so that you don't attack all your critics without cause. In fact, we shouldn't attack any of our critics without cause. The Lord sees and knows all that comes out of our mouths. And Jesus once said that we will be judged for every idle word we speak. So our words matter. It matters that we speak true words. As a follower of Jesus Christ, will you step up in courage to speak the truth about evil when you are called upon to do so? Will you have the confident humility to hold back your words and not speak from a heart seeking vengeance for hurts? As a church, will we judge without partiality? Will we resist giving wickedness a pass as though it is in the right, even when there is tremendous pressure to fly a rainbow flag in a few days when Pride Month starts? Will we receive feedback and criticism with grace and humility, refusing to go on the attack just because a person or an agency has caused us pain? In short, will our speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt? Because God's wisdom wants us to speak the truth, to step up with wise words. But that's not all. The rest of this poem turns to highlight not only our words, but also our works. Even if we speak true words, will our works live up to them? This is point number two, diligent works. Going back now to the second stanza in verse 27, we see a shift in focus from our words to our works. Specifically, we're told in verse 27 to prepare our work outside in the field before attempting to build a house. Now, this is a beautiful verse. This very interesting verse. Every commentary I checked takes this verse as a metaphor that's not specifically instructing the construction workers among us as to how to do their work. It's a metaphor. And most of the commentaries see the metaphor as a metaphor for coming of age. So that the house is a metaphor of a family. And the word house is commonly used that way in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Proverbs. Just think of the house of Jacob or the house of Levi, which refers to their families. So this verse then is, is interpreted and it's applied as an instruction to younger people coming of age to not get married until they have done the work of preparing themselves for it. So make sure you have a job or a source of income along with the maturity required to manage a family. Prepare your work outside and don't rush into marriage. Don't build your house until such things are in place. Now, I think that this is very good advice. 
This is one of the biggest problems with our culture of dating and hooking up, the way the world does it, where people attempt to get as intimate as possible without sufficient maturity or responsibility. But with that said, I do have some hesitation with limiting this verse to that application. Because in both stanzas before and after verse 27, the, the poet is talking about judgment and justice. And verses are often scattershot in this latter part of Proverbs from chapter 10 on. So it could just be scattershot here as well. But I think there's good reason to read this as a coherent unit which we've seen so far, the words connection, there's a works connection as well. And so I can't help but wonder whether there ought to be a sense in which the house being built here could also be referring to a nation or a kingship, sort of this this social structure that is rendering judgment on good and evil. Think of how the Old Testament refers to the house of David uses the word house this way as a reference to David's dynasty, his empire, the kingship. And so, in that sense, according to verse 27, aspiring nobles, those who are going to become leaders in society, must learn that the government must be built from the ground up on a foundation of justice and wisdom. So you can't grab hold of power first, building the house of your kingdom, without first preparing the work in your field of figuring out all this stuff about justice and righteousness. So let's learn justice and righteousness first and not wait until we get into the positions of authority. And remember, once again, the people of God now is made up of not only of Jews like ancient Israel, but also of all who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a wealth of application here for the church's activism in the world as we look at social structures and how society works. And So as a church, we need to be careful to promote true righteousness and justice in the world to understand that. This is our field And only when we understand that and we're promoting that, then we can concern ourselves with building up our own church structure, which is our house. When I grew up in the 1980s and 90s, the the Christian church in the United States was all about getting access to the halls of power. The moral majority was a big deal, which turned into the religious right. President Ronald Reagan held White House prayer breakfasts and Christians wanted to have a say in government policy. Now, I think that it's better for the church to have a say in public policy than for the church to not have a say in public policy. But the problem that I think has since been exposed is that When the church of Jesus Christ has a say in public policy, the church too often has very little idea what it is talking about. Sometimes we get things backwards, such that we want power so we can maintain our comfort and security, but we forget that the purpose of power is to serve the people around us. 
to promote righteousness and justice in the field that is the world. And perhaps the Lord has been trying in our day to help his church get more stuff ready in the field. To turn our eyes outside our own walls and our own families to long for peace and blessing to the world the way God does. And when our eyes are out there for the good of the world, perhaps then we're qualified to build our own house, to gain power, to have a voice. The Apostle Paul picks up on these metaphors when he describes the people he was ministering to as God's field, God's building. These are the same metaphors of the field and the house. When our focus is on our house first, we hold ourselves up in here and make sure that we can't lose anything that we've already got. But when our focus is on the outside, the field first, we look around and we take more notice of our neighbors and their needs and our neighborhoods and our society and what's going on. A church that focuses first on its own house might schedule activities every night of the week in order to solidify relationships here on the inside. But a church focused on the field first schedules a number of activities to encourage and support people and build our family, but leaves space in the schedule for people to engage with their communities. A church that focuses on its own house first might focus on its own distinctives to such an extent that they cannot form partnerships even with other churches or community organizations that might help serve the needs of the region. Because we're so focused on just what makes us distinct and we can't partner with all those other people who are different. But a church focused on the field first, preparing that work in the field, that church finds ways to serve and to connect, to celebrate what others are doing yet without losing its own distinctives. I'm not saying that we should lose our distinctives. I think this highlights why this verse is sandwiched between two poetic stanzas on truth and justice in our speech in the public sphere. Because if all we had was verse 27, and even we, we, we understood it in this corporate way, we might think that the church must become a social service agency, and that's it. But this must not be so. Our works must simply live up to the words we proclaim. As a church, we cannot give up our commitment to preaching the scriptures, to raising our children in the faith, and to keeping Jesus front and center in everything. Because as we do these things, or let me say, while we do these things, have we given the borough of State College any reason to think that we actually mean what we say? Have we made these words of ours visible through our works in the community? Because if we don't give attention to our field before building our own house, it will become visible to all who care to observe. 
Look again at the the fourth stanza. Let me read this from verse 30. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns, the ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Now, I love the layers of meaning in this poem. The last two verses, 33 and 34, are nearly identical to Proverbs chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. And when we studied that chapter, we spoke about the sin of laziness. This poem here in chapter 24 shows us how the poet, how this wise man came up with that saying in those two verses. He was walking He was out for a walk one day and he happened to walk past this sluggard's home with the field all overgrown and unweeded and it inspired him to write a little chant, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. So there is certainly a literal surface meaning to this poem as a warning against laziness broadly. But in the context of what he's been saying since verse 23 in this section, I think there's another layer of meaning as well. That meaning is that if you speak the truth, but your works in the community do not bolster that truth, then your religious assembly is all talk. It's a bunch of hot air. The people around you cannot see the power of these words and therefore they will remain unpersuaded by them. Friends, how does this apply? Please consider what the Lord would have you do to live out the truth of his word so you might more diligently prepare the work in the field. Prepare the work outside. Personally, I've been quite convicted by this passage. By God's grace, I believe I've grown increasingly courageous to speak the truth of God specifically toward righteousness and wickedness. But the work of God among people and neighborhoods is something I'm more inclined to neglect from laziness. And I must bring these things into closer alignment, lest my words lose some of their power from the failure of my actions. One practical way I'm trying to do this is simply to take more initiative with other parents on Charlotte's baseball team and with other parents in my kids' music groups. We've got these natural Connections, these natural opportunities to be involved in the community. So I want to connect with people and show them our concern for the truth and for justice in the world. What is it for you? Are you more naturally inclined to be a word person or a works person? And either way, how can you bring the other one 
into closer alignment with your strength. Because our church's works must live up to our words. And our words must live up to our works. And lest you think this is an Old Testament thing or somehow devoid of God's grace, I want you to see that the Lord Jesus himself is deeply invested in our church's words and our works. As we look around at the world, where else but in the church of Jesus Christ can we see this harmony between words and works? When a group of people care about speaking the truth to wickedness and about activating life and hope in their communities. Where people care more about themselves so that they can serve the entire world and they aren't willing to compromise on truth or reality in order to serve the world. Jesus is so invested in his kingdom, in his people living in this way, that he died and he rose from the dead to make it possible so he could bring this church to himself. We won't get the motivation for aligning our words with our works by gazing deep within and by being true to ourselves. No, there will not be much truth there or much love for humanity there. What we need is the comfort and the hope of the Lord Jesus who loved us and gave his life for us. Notice how the Apostle Paul links together the love and the comfort of Christ with the church's works and words in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 where he asks that the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, may he comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. May the Lord Jesus Christ be true to his promise to delight in his people making us a kingdom of priests to help him win the world. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we are in awe at what you have done in Christ, that you have made it possible that we could be your people and that the world can be filled with your glory and can be rescued and brought back to you. Please help us to be a part of it. Help us to be wise in judgment and wise in our works. Strengthen our hands that we might reflect the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and demonstrate his grace and his love and his hope for the world. Lord, may we not lose hope ever at where the world is going or what is happening because your grace is always sufficient Your power is always perfect and you are in the process of transforming all things for your glory and help us to be a part of that by your grace. I ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.